So Matthew chapter 1, right? This is not only the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, but this is in fact the first chapter, the first verse we have here of the entire New Testament. Matthew, of all people in the world, has the extraordinary privilege of introducing us to Jesus Christ. So the first page of the New Testament, the first words of the story of Jesus, it's the first words of the Christmas story, and uh, that's a tall order, right? Like, you have to be the guy who, after, you know, there were 400 years of silence in the, the prophets speaking until the writings of the gospel until the coming of Jesus, right? So for 400 years, nothing has been written as scripture. And now you have the job of introducing everybody to Jesus. That's a tall order, isn't it? And uh, if someone gave you the task, think about it, of introducing the president or some famous person or writing a foreword to the book about the greatest person who ever lived, well, you would take that pretty seriously. And well, you'd probably want to start it off with a bang, right? Like you'd want to really get people's attention. You want to do the thing right. I mean, in public speaking, the advice they always give is try to grab everybody's attention straight from the outset with your opening comments. You know, do something to throw them off. Give them a joke. Give them an interesting story. So how does Matthew kick off the New Testament? How does he kick off the story of Christmas, the story introducing us to Jesus? Well, here's how he does it. Verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Wow, a genealogy. You know, I'll tell you, if there's one thing that people love reading about ancient scriptures, it's the genealogies. I mean, nothing beats reading a list of names you can't pronounce of people you've never met. It's kind of like reading the phone book, but not just any phone book. It's kind of like reading a Hebrew phone book. And who doesn't love doing that, right? And so for that reason... A lot of people, when they open up to the Gospel of Matthew, they're kind of like, yada, 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 verse 18, the birth of Jesus Christ, right? So we skip over uh, this stuff, and we get down to the good stuff, in our opinion, right? The stuff that really matters. But you know what? That's not what we do here at Whitefields. Not us. We're going to spend uh, the whole month of December talking about this genealogy. Are you guys pumped for that? You guys excited about that? Now, some of you heard me say that, and you're nodding, yes, I'm excited, but secretly you're thinking, Maybe I'm going to go to the bathroom and not come back, right? Uh, I mean, what could be more dull than a genealogy, really? But let me tell you what, this is not just your average run-of-the-mill genealogy. What, when you look closely at these names, what you find is, well, for lack of a better word, it's scandalous. It is absolutely scandalous. Uh, each of these names represents a story. And they're not all good, and they're not wholesome stories. That's what's surprising about it. They're true stories, and they're the kind of stories that most families have, but most families don't like to talk about, right? You see, there's a reason why Jesus starts the Christmas story by telling us a, the, a genealogy. It's because the birth of Jesus Christ, it didn't just happen, right? It didn't just kind of drop out of the sky without any warning. The birth of Jesus was the culmination of everything that God had been doing and promising almost since the beginning of the world. You know, for generation after generation, people in Israel had been hoping for and waiting for the birth of a very special person, a person who had been promised by God, a person who the Jews called the Messiah, and there were some very specific criteria that God had given the people in regard to who this Messiah would be. It couldn't just be anybody, right? They, they had to meet certain criteria. Most importantly and significantly, the Messiah had to be a direct descendant 
of Abraham, and he had to be a direct descendant of King David. So if you were a Jewish person in the first century, and somebody hands you this manuscript, right, that we now call the Gospel of Matthew, you would not have skipped over the first 17 verses as being irrelevant. You would have read that over with a fine-tooth comb. Because these aren't just names of people, these are Jesus' credentials, right? This is one of the most important qualifications for anybody who would be, who would make the claim that they're the Messiah, the question would immediately be, okay, but is he a descendant of Abraham? Is he a descendant of King David? Can you prove it? And so now, uh, just to be clear, right, before we go on, what is a Messiah, right? Well, the word Messiah, that's a Hebrew word. It means anointed one. And the word Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah, also meaning the same thing, anointed one. So Christ isn't just Jesus' last name, it's his title. He is Jesus, the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah. So in the Old Testament, there were three kinds of people who were anointed with oil. Prophets, priests, and kings. And that anointing meant it was, it was that they would pour oil literally on top of their heads. And it was a symbol of the Holy Spirit coming upon that person to empower them to fulfill the calling that God had given them to be a prophet, a priest, or a king. And yet there was this promise that one day there would come someone, someone special, who would perfectly encompass all of these roles, he would fulfill all of these roles perfectly. He would be the ultimate prophet, priest, and king all in one. And, uh, and so he would be the anointed one. You see, the Messiah. Isaiah the prophet spoke about this anointed one in his prophecy. In, in chapter 61 of Isaiah the prophet, he writes this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. You see what I'm saying? The spirit of the Lord's upon me. The Lord's anointed me. Messiah, anointed one. To bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What he's talking about is the Messiah, the Christ, this anointed one who had come as the ultimate king and priest and prophet all wrapped into one. And that's why it's significant. Do you know that when Jesus, his first public speaking appearance, it says in Luke chapter 4, Jesus went to his hometown and he went to the synagogue. And he was there and they saw him and they said, hey, would you read the Old Testament? They had an Old Testament reading, much like we started the service with today. And so it says there in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus asked for the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And he opened it up to this place that we just read, Isaiah 61. And he read those very words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because God has anointed me. And then Jesus wrapped it all up by saying this. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You see, Jesus was clearly unquestionably stating that he was the Messiah. He was making that claim and everybody understood it. But of course, the question that they would have when Jesus came on the scene and made this kind of claim was that they would ask, well, okay, sure, but what are your credentials before we go any further with this? Do you meet the criteria to even make that claim that you are the Messiah? Because, of course, there were certain criteria. Over the course of the century, God had revealed to the prophets certain things that would be true of the Messiah. 
One was that he would be born in Bethlehem. That was one of the scriptures that Camille read just a few minutes ago. Which, you know, Bethlehem being the ancestral home of King David. And also, he would be a direct descendant of David and a descendant of Abraham. So Matthew begins his telling of the Christmas story by telling us Jesus is a descendant of Abraham and a descendant of David. And then he goes on to prove it. He gives the evidence, the proof that Jesus meets the criteria to be the Messiah. If he were not the son of Abraham and the son of David, then there would be no point in going any further. There would be no point in talking about silent night and babies in mangers in Bethlehem and all the rest. There would be no point because he wouldn't meet the criteria. So this is, is foundational to our understanding of the Christmas story. There is no Christmas story without this genealogy, in other words. Well, let's see how it goes from verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Very good, right? So Matthew's taking us from Abraham up through David to Jesus. Verse 3. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. All right, now here's where we're going to stop, actually. Did you notice something interesting in that verse? Uh, we have this list of all these men so far, several men, and then there's this kind of random woman thrown in there. By the way, she's, she's the, the mother of these two children. Now, you might say, well, what's a big deal about that? Who cares, right? Well, it was a big deal because ordinarily in this time, women were not included in genealogies, and that is very true if you look through the other genealogies in the Bible. For example, if you look at the Gospel of Luke, there also you have a genealogy of Jesus and that follows the custom of the day in that they only mention the men's names and they don't mention the women's names. So when we see here that there's a woman's name, that's something that should pique our interest and catch our attention. It's something which certainly would have piqued the interest of a Jewish person reading this back in the day for the first time. In, in, this, uh, in this genealogy, what we're going to see is that there are five women listed here. And, and that's interesting, right? Just five. Only five. And what that means is that it's not all the women in Jesus' family history who were mentioned, but only specific women. So then you start to realize, well, that makes the story even all the more interesting, right? Because then you look at who those women were, and what you find, and that's what we're going to do over the next couple weeks, by the way. What you find as you look at this is, is you wonder, well, if you're going to mention certain people by name, you're going to highlight only a few women in Jesus' family history, well, why these ones? Why them? These are the kind of people, as we're going to see, that most people would try to keep hush-hush about being related to, right? You wouldn't really want to go out and advertise it because their stories aren't ideal and they're not wholesome. Instead, they're messy. They're full of scandal. They're full of intrigue and they're full of sin. So why would God want to give specific mention, particular mention to these people in his family tree? Well, there are several reasons and I'm going to tell you what they are, but first I want to look at the story with you. So the story is the story of Tamar. Now, if you were a Jewish person reading this for the first time, I got to tell you, you would be shocked to see the mention of Tamar in the genealogy of the Messiah. You know why? Because the story of Tamar is one of those stories in the Old Testament that most of us want to forget about, right? Like we'd be a lot more comfortable with it if that story hadn't even been included in the Bible. And, you know, there are certain stories that we, uh, we teach in our children's ministry. We have uh, coloring pages describing the events that happen in those stories. We have flannel graphs. 
But, I, you know, for whatever reason, no one has probably ever created a flannel graph about this story we're about to read. And, uh, and I'm going to show you why. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 38. It's Genesis chapter 38, and we're going to start in verse 1. It says this, It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. So Jacob, or I'm sorry, Judah, of course, one of the sons of Jacob, who's also known by the name Israel. And Israel has 12 sons who are going to be the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. Many of you know that Jesus descended from the tribe of Judah, which makes us think that Judah must have been a pretty awesome guy, right? His name means praise, which is a great name. But when you look at a, the person who had that name, the person who fathered this tribe, well, let's just say that his life did not match up with his name. We see here that the setting of this story is that Judah left his family, right? His family, the community of believers. Now, they were messed up. They got all kinds of drama and trauma going on in their family. But he, he leaves them, the community of believers, and he goes off with this guy named Hira the Adulamite. Now, this guy is bad news. Let me just tell you that. Every time we see Judah hanging out with Hira the Adulamite, there's all kinds of messes and problems going on. Judah starts making some really bad decisions. And some of you guys probably have this person in your life. You've got Hira the Adulamite, right? That one friend that you hang out with. And whenever you hang out with him, right, you end up doing something really stupid, right? And so, some of you guys are like Judah, right? You, you live this kind of dual life right where you have these two groups of friends right that you hang out with you got the christian friends and then you got the other friends right the the christian friends are the ones you go to church with bible studies community groups they're the friends who keep you accountable they're the ones who say hey that's sin we shouldn't do that right and then on the other hand you've got this other group of friends and let's just say they're kind of the opposite of a accountability partner right they're kind of like hey that's sin we should go do that twice right? So that's who Hira the Adulamite was for Judah. He was the opposite of an accountability partner. So Judah has left the community of believers. He's gone off with Hira the Adulamite, this friend who isn't a believer and who just encourages Judah to do things that are not what God would have him do. And you know, I think there are a lot of Christians who live that kind of double life like Judah did, where, where they're one person around their Christian friends, but they're a completely different person when they're around a different group of people. And you just kind of go along, right? You're like a chameleon. You just kind of conform and do whatever the people around you are doing. And you laugh at the jokes that those people are telling. You just kind of conform to whatever's going on around you. But let me tell you this. God's desire is that you wouldn't have that kind of dual life, but that you would be a person of integrity, that you would have wholeness, right? Oneness to who you are, that you would be undivided, that you would be the same person no matter what setting you're in and no matter who's around you, that you wouldn't compromise what you stand for or what you believe in because of pressure from people around you. Unfortunately, Judah was not a person of integrity like that. And we'll see that as we go on. Verse 2 in chapter 38 of Genesis. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah, which is kind of a bummer of a name, am I right? Uh, Judah was in uh, Chezib when she bore him. 
So here's Judah. He's supposed to be a part of the, this community of Israel, right? This nation of people who know the Lord and walk with the Lord and worship the Lord. But now Judah has forsaken that believing community and he's gone off with, this, in, with his friend Hira the Adulamite and he's joined up with the Canaanite society. And he marries this girl who doesn't share his faith and they end up having three sons together. Verse 6, we read this. Judah took a wife for his son Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. So here is this woman, Tamar, who is somehow going to be related to Jesus. So Judah raises kids in Canaanite society. They're not going to church. They don't have any believing community. He's raising his kids uh, not the way that he was raised. He's not raising them to know and walk with the Lord. And so when it comes time for his oldest to get married, it's only natural that he chooses a Canaanite woman for him to marry. That's who Tamar is. She's a Gentile. She's a Canaanite. Verse 7. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Wow. Well, we don't know exactly what Ur did, but it was obviously so grievous of a thing that he did that God said, enough's enough, no more. I'm done. You're done, right? Game over for you, right? God took his life right then and there. So verse 8, we read this. Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now this takes a little bit of historical context. You see, the practice of that day, which is referred to here, is called leveret marriage. Leveret marriage. And this was the custom of that day, which was later included, if you see in Deuteronomy chapter 25, it was included in the law of Moses. And what this was, was it was done for the purpose of posterity. It was done for the purpose of inheritance, of carrying on a family name. If a man died without an heir, then his, oldest, his next oldest brother would have the responsibility of marrying his widow and having children with her. That way, she wouldn't end up a destitute widow. She'd have children who would take care of her when she was elderly, and she would not end up a destitute widow, which was really one of the most difficult fates you could have in that society. And so this was really to care for the widows. They would have this practice. And so the first child that this you know, new couple would have would count as the deceased man's son or daughter, and would they would be the heir to the estate and the heir to the property and they would take that dead brother's name even. And so Judah, right, the dad, this, he's ordering his second son, Onan, to marry his first son who passed away, marry his first son's widow, Tamar. And, and this was really the right thing to do according to the custom. This was, he's doing the right thing by instructing his son to do this. But here's where it gets, uh, starts to turn for the worse. Verse 9. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Wow. So uh, Onan did... What Onan did to Tamar was really a terrible thing because you can imagine here that Tamar, there's one thing she really wants and that is to have a baby, right? She wants to have a baby because her, her husband's passed away. She wants to have a baby so that she will have uh, a child, so that she'll have someone to take care of and later to take care of her. But Onan, this guy, right, he sleeps with her, but he will not let her get pregnant. And he knows that this child won't be his, but he also knows that Tamar is desperate to have a child, so he keeps leading her on, right? And, and telling her, oh yeah, we'll have a baby, but then 
he, he won't. He just keeps sleeping with her, but he doesn't let her get pregnant. Do you see that that's a cruel thing that Onan is doing to her? It's, it's just heartless. And I think the same kind of thing happens today, right? Guys go around telling girls that they love them, that they want to be with them forever. They talk about marriage and a future and everything. But all they really want is to sleep with them, right? And, and they just tell them whatever they want to hear so that they'll go to bed. Now, Onan was taking advantage of Tamar physically. He was disrespecting her, and he had no love or concern for her whatsoever. He was selfishly using her. It's a sad thing. And the Lord saw the way that Onan was treating Tamar, and God brought immediate judgment on Onan and took his life away right there on the spot. And, and this story should really put fear into the heart of men all around the world. So check it out. This is where ungodly living has gotten Judah. Two of his sons grew up to be such terrible, wicked people that God killed them, right? He said, game over, enough of you, right? He ended their life prematurely. Two of his three sons are now dead. They're just dropping like flies. And the only really common denominator is this woman, Tamar. Well, he's got one son left. Do you think he's going to give her to him to Tamar? No way. He doesn't want that son to die too. But the law required that he give his son to Tamar in marriage. That was the rule. Well, let's see what he does in verse 11. Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house until Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So this younger son, Shelah, just awesome name. He, he's still just a boy. He's not old enough to get married. And so Judah sends Tamar away to live with her parents until Sheila is of marrying age, at which time Judah will supposedly call for Tamar and they'll get married and, and have a family. But Tamar sees what's going on, right? She's picking up what Judah's putting down. She knows that Judah is just sending her away with no intention of actually following through on his obligation to give his son to her in marriage, even though, right, the law required him to do so. So she's going to take matters into her own hands, which, you know, that always turns out well, right? When you just, I'm just going to take things into my own hands, right? So this is really where the story gets messy. You know, uh, the saying goes, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. That's where we get our title from today, but it's very much true of Tamar. She is a woman scorned. So check out what she does. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was com comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. There that guy is again. He is bad news. And let me tell you this, right? Sheep shearing time in a society of people where everybody, well, a lot of shepherds, right? You know what sheep shearing time is? That's Mardi Gras, right? That is like Super Bowl Sunday. This is when you have a big party. It's the wildest, craziest party in time of the year because that's when you get a whole bunch of money, right? And so you're looking to spend some of that money right away. It's, it's Mardi Gras time. It's Super Bowl Sunday. So who does Judah call? He calls his friend Hira the Adulamite. Who else, right? His old drinking buddy. They're going to get together and they're going to have some fun. Let's see what happens in verse 13. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she knew what that meant. And so she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of Eniam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw, she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. 
When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that, I may, that you may come into me? He said, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge, I will send uh, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and the staff that's in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, taking off her veil and she put on the garments of her widowhood. Well, this is really just not great for a lot of reasons, right? Well, it gets even worse. Verse 20, then Judah sent the young goat by his friend, Hira the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand. He did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Anayim on the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I haven't found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. So Judah slept with Tamar, not realizing it was Tamar, thinking she was a prostitute, which is not really better, right? And then when it came time for him to pay, uh, he didn't have any money on him. He's like, oh, I forgot my wallet, right? And she says, well, what do you got on you? And so he gives her his signet ring with, uh, you know, as a form of collateral. Now, a signet ring in those days, that's like the equivalent of your driver's license. That's your form of identification, for real. And, uh, you know, the staff, all these things, the core, this would be like the equivalent today. I'm giving you my car keys and my ID. And so Judah, he had given those things over to her, to her with the expectation he'd get them back when he sent his payment. Tries to send payment. She's nowhere to be found. He can't get his ID back. So you know what he says? He says, you know what, I'm just going to replace my ID and, uh, and get a new set of car keys because I don't want everybody to know that I was with a prostitute. That would be shameful, and I, I just don't want to pursue it any further. Whatever, she can keep them. Verse 24, this is how the story uh, continues. After three months, uh, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Right? So word gets around that Tamar is pregnant. Now, how can that be that Tamar is pregnant? She's not married. I mean, technically, she's still a member of Judah's family. And she's not married. And the only person she would be allowed to marry legitimately would be Judah's son, Shelah. But Judah hasn't given Shelah to her in marriage, even though he was supposed to. That would mean that Tamar must have committed adultery. And she's carrying an illegitimate child. And that just makes Judah angry, right? He's filled with this righteous indignation. How dare she do that? My daughter-in-law, how dare she commit sin like that? How dare she bring shame upon our family? She deserves to die. Bring her here, we're going to burn her to death. Only thing is this, right? That Judah had also committed adultery. Uh, he had been with a prostitute, yet he found it very easy to pass judgment on someone who had sinned in the exact same way that he had, but see, people didn't know about his sin. Her sin was obvious. She couldn't hide it. Isn't that the tendency that most of us have? To be super judgmental towards other people, yet super gracious towards ourselves? To be so worried about the speck in somebody else's eye, rather than dealing with the plank in our own eye? You see, your sin always looks uglier when you see it on somebody else. That was certainly the case here with Judah. Verse 25. 
As she was brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, this signet ring and this cord and this staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. Tamar drops the hammer here, doesn't she, right? She's like, hey, Judah. Hey, you know, um, that's cool. I understand you're going to arrest me, burn me, and all that stuff. But before I do, just one quick question. Whose uh, car keys and driver's license is this? Oh, yeah, aren't they yours? Yeah, they are, aren't they? And, and you know, you can just imagine Judah's jaw just drops, right? He, here he is taking a stand against this other person's sin, right? He's taking a stand for righteousness, trying to make an example out of somebody. But now in front of everybody, his sin is revealed. His hypocrisy is revealed. And now everybody knows that not only has he visited a prostitute, but that he treated this woman, Tamar, in an unfair way. So you see, Tamar, what did she do? She took matters into her own hands. She vindicated herself. And now she's going to have an heir. She's going to have children to take care of her. She got justice, didn't she? She was being treated unfairly, and she got justice. But the thing is, the way she went about it was totally wrong, right? Totally messed up. So you look at this story and you have to ask the question, who is the good guy in this story? Who's wearing the white hat, right? Who's the good guy? Well, the fact is there just simply isn't one. There is no good guy in this story. I mean, Tamar, she was treated unfairly. That's not okay. But the way she went about seeking justice, although effective, was not the right way to do it. And bad behavior on someone else's part does not justify bad behavior on my part, right? So we can't say that what she did was good. But yet, what options did she really have? I mean, she was being treated unfairly. But that doesn't mean that what she did was okay. See, it's a, just a, it's a messy, muddled, messed up situation. It's the kind of thing, you know, we don't like those things. We like things that are cut and dry, black and white, where we can figure out who's the good guy, who's the bad guy. This is not that kind of story. But let me tell you what, this is reality. It's messed up. It's muddled. No matter how you look at it, everybody's wrong. Everybody's sinned. Everybody's deceitful. Everybody's immoral. But out of this messed up situation come two babies, twins. They're the direct descendants of Judah through Tamar. And that's how the chapter ends. Let's read that in verse 27. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zira. And that brings us back to where we began, in the Gospel of Matthew, with the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew tells us that Jesus descended from Perez, the son of Judah and Tamar. You see, this sordid, messed up situation was ultimately used by God to bring the Redeemer into the world, Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that God wanted it all to go down like it did, but here's what it means. It means that our God is a Redeemer. He redeems. Our God is a redeemer. Redemption, what redemption is, is when you save something, right? It's when you save something that's doomed. It's when you repurpose something that is condemned and you use it for good. You give it a new future. You give it a future full of hope. 
You see, that is what God has done for us. That is the message of the gospel. That is what it means that Jesus is our redeemer. He has taken us. The Bible says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says that each and every person is spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins, condemned and cut off from God. That is who we are in our natural state. But the message of the gospel is that God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, sent Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, our redeemer, to save us, to repurpose us, to give us future and a hope. And not only is he the redeemer of our souls, but you know what? He is a redeemer because he redeems situations like this one in our story here today. He can redeem even our mistakes, even our failures, even our follies. And he can bring good things out of the bad things that have happened, even the things that we've done. Now look at the story of Judah and Tamar. So many bad things, right? So much. But yet God, being rich in mercy, turns this story of sin a story of, into a story of redemption. Because out of these flawed people, out of this broken situation, God brings salvation into the world. The Messiah and the Savior. One writer, his name is Griffith Thomas, he said this, It is simply astonishing that God could take up the threads of this very tangled skein and wave them into his, weave them into his own pattern. In Isaiah 61, that Old Testament prophecy, which I read the beginning of earlier, right, about the Messiah, the anointed one. I didn't read the whole thing. It goes on to say this about the Messiah who will come. He will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and he will grant to those who mourn a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. You see, that is what redemption is all about. It's about beauty from ashes. The story of Tamar is part of the Christmas story. And it's a part of the story that God wanted to make sure that we knew about, that we remembered. Isn't that incredible? That God would say, you know, of all the stories, I want you to remember this one. Why? Because it's a story of redemption. It's an example of how God is a redeemer, of how he brings beauty out of ashes and salvation out of brokenness. And if he could do that for them, well then what about you? Amen? Could he do that for you? I believe that he can. If they were that messed up, then what about you? Can he redeem you? Can he repurpose your life? Can he use it for his glory? Can he redeem even your past mistakes and errors and failures and use those things for good? I believe that he can. Absolutely. In fact, you know what? That is his specialty. He loves to do that all day long. And if you will put your life in his hands... Amen. If you'll put your life in his hands, your past, everything, and just say, Lord, I'm yours. Will you take this mess? Will you bless this mess? Let me tell you what, he will. He will redeem it. He'll repurpose it. He'll use it for good and for his purposes. And I'd like to finish just by, say, by answering the question that I posed earlier and didn't answer. And that's this. Why would God go out of his way to give us particular mention of these people specifically in Jesus' family tree. It's, here's the reason. It's to show you that there is room for you in his family. You know that? There is room for you in his family. You know, think about this. It would have been really easy, and we would have never thought twice about it, if God would have just said, so then Judah had a son, and his name was Perez, the end, right? Like, and then we carry on. But then he, he goes into all this, why, why tell us all the details? Especially these kind of details. I mean, these are just gruesome. 
We would have never had to know about this messed up situation and all this sin. Why tell us all these sordid details? Because that's the story of redemption. And God wants us to know that the Christmas story at its heart, at its core, the essence of what it is, it's a story of redemption. And the grand story of redemption is made up of a lot of little stories of redemption. And it includes yours as well. Your story of redemption. You've got a story and God wants your story to be part of his grand story of redemption. If there's room for Judah and Tamar in God's family, do you think there's room for you? Absolutely, without a doubt. That's the point of this story. No matter where you've been or what you've done, there's room for you in his family. Not only does God want to welcome you in, but there, he, he wants to take your past and he wants to repurpose your life and he wants to give you a new future. Because Jesus Christ came. At the end of this line of, of people who were characterized by sin and folly, Jesus came as the anointed one of God and he lived without sin and he died a sacrificial death taking our sins, our iniquities, our failures, our mistakes upon himself and paid the penalty for them all. Three days later, he rose from the dead, proving that he had defeated death for good. And he brought life out of death. And he offers that redemption to you today. That's what Christmas is all about. Would you please stand with me and pray? Lord, we thank you for that message of redemption. We thank you that the Christmas story at its heart, Lord, is a story of redemption, and it has been a story of redemption all the way from the beginning of the world and, and even up until our day. Thank you, Lord, that our stories can be part of your grand story of redemption. And I do pray for everyone here today, Lord, that you would repurpose our lives, that the mistakes and the failures and the sins of our past, Lord, the things that have happened to us and the things that we have done ourselves, Lord, would you take those things which were meant for evil and, Lord, would you use them for good and for your glory? Would you redeem our lives, our souls, and even the situations in our lives? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.